Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the Everyday Martial Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born in Pennsylvania, but lives in Colorado most of the time. He's an author, entrepreneur, and martial artist. He graduated from Penn State with a degree in writing and natural science. He started his blog in 2008 and started his own company, Absos Media, in 2009. In 2015, he started Absol's Publishing to publish his own works as well as help other martial artists publish theirs. He's been studying martial arts for over 25 years. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Matthew Absolcardu. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I guess 2008, 2009 was a busy time for me. I never really <laughs> thought about it that way. I guess so. Well, that's kind of when we were, the, the, the U.S. was in their kind of bad financial situation. You took advantage of it, so it's good. Yeah, you, you, you make the best of it, I guess. You know, graduating college in 2006... I think a lot of people just kind of launch with energy and, and hope that they land somewhere safe. Exactly. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, by 2008, 2009, I was uh, in a position where I was starting to make some decisions and, uh, you know, it, it, it has been working out. So I'm happy. Well, how we like to start things off with all my guests, I want to go back to the beginning and find out what led to that first interest, that first spark about martial arts and kind of how you started your martial arts journey. Sure. Yeah. Happy to, to share. So this was around 1995 and I was about 11 years old. So uh, a young nerd and I liked a lot of uh, media content around uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Karate Kid. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, probably things I might not have been, should have been watching just yet, mm -hmm. uh, but, but was checking them out. And what ended up happening was a family member of mine ended up opening a karate school down the road from me. Oh, wow. And uh, this person needed some early students just to kind of fill out the student body as you do. You know, anytime you're starting a venture like that, you just need a couple early wins. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, my brother, my cousin, myself, and, and just a handful of others we all kind of said, hey, yeah, well, let's try it out and we'll join. Out of those original ones, how many stuck with it? Uh, so I was probably the only one that made it a <laughs> lifelong pursuit. Okay. Uh, ev everyone else had had other things that drew them in, in one direction or the other. So I would say I'm probably the lingering uh, vestige of that. Nice. So then what was it when you first got into it? What made you want to stick with it? Make it a lifetime thing at that age? What made you want to keep going to it? Yeah, I would say at first... It was definitely one of multiple things that I did. So, you know, it wasn't like the first day I walked into the dojo, it was the only thing I cared about forever and ever. I was playing other sports. I was playing some soccer and some basketball and eventually some tennis and stuff like that. So it was just something that fit my routine. Generally, the dojo would come in the evenings, so I could play other sports during the day or in the morning and then uh, go to the dojo in the evening. So it was something that kind of fit in. But I think it was a little different. And that was what made me stick with it, okay. especially after the beginning there. So the sports that you would normally join, soccer, basketball, stuff like that, fairly commonplace. 
whereas the dojo was slightly unusual. So it helped me stand out a bit uh, and feel a little bit special compared to people I knew in school. And I guess maybe if I had been an excellent basketball player or soccer player or something like that, maybe I would have drifted away and gone that direction. But I was very mediocre in those things. So the martial arts was something that I had a little bit of a talent for, a little bit of a spark for. And it was capturing my imagination at that time because it connected to uh, movies and TV shows and things like that that I really found interesting. And then I think the final slice of the cake there was that I was a bit of a smart aleck too. (laughs) So needing the actual tools that it was providing me uh, was a factor. Nice. And what was that uh, original style you joined? That was called Okinawa Kempo. Cool. And then how long did you stay at that school and what belt level did you get to? Sure. So I stayed at that school, let's see, probably, let's see, uh, eight or nine years or so. And wow. I got, I, I think I got to about Shodan or Nidan before ultimately uh, transferring to a different Okinawa Kempo school in the area where I was able to continue my studies. So on that first school at that, you know, those first, you know, seven, eight, nine years, did you get involved in competition? Was that something that the school took part of? Involved in some competition. I think it was the right age uh, for that. When you're talking about, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, I think competition is really valid. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of energy. You've, you're coming up through those early ranks. You need to develop the intangible skill sets as well as the tangible ones. So things like having the courage to go up and compete, having the humility to fail in front of a lot of people, get back up and try again, taking a couple hard losses along the way. Uh, I think those are probably more valuable than the wins. Although, obviously, at that age, collecting a couple trophies is a nice self-confidence boost as well. So, yeah, my my general perspective on competition is, especially at that age and uh, in those early ranks coming up through, I think it can certainly serve a purpose. I think you just have to have an instructor who can help you keep a frame of reference in terms of where competition fits into the fold in terms of its importance. Uh, it can be something that you can you know, strive toward, look to achieve some success there. In my opinion, you got to be careful not to let that become the primary focus. Do you remember your first tournament? No, uh, I definitely don't. <laughs> okay. uh, I started competing around green belt. I know that. And then I continued competing through brown belt up into the Shodan territory. And then I drifted away from it. I would do one every now and then if it was held by an instructor that was you know, a friend or something like that. But no, I really don't remember the first one. I remember a couple key losses, if that's interesting to oh, you. Yeah, definitely. Whatever you, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, I'm assuming that I mean, you remember them, so they must have had some kind of impact for some reason. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think those are more memorable than any of the trophies one. Uh, so here's one for you. So I was about 16 or 17 years old, and I was just starting to compete in the black belt division. So uh, if we kind of do our math there, I had been training for about six years and got uh, Shodan. So I think that's about how long it took me. And Shodan being uh, the first degree black belt. So I was up and I started competing against other black belts. And with that tournament, it wasn't just like Shodans versus Shodans. It was kind of like, okay, here are all the black belts in a certain age bracket. And then you had a master's division for everyone older, you know, older than the age of 50 or something like that. So we were kind of all nestled together. And so I got up to do my uh, my kumite, my sparring, and I looked across the ring and it was a guy who was about 6'4", you know, about 190 pounds. And I'm about 5'10", and at that age, I would have been probably about 140 pounds. So needless to say, organically and naturally, I was not quite there. 
Um, but I don't think I realized it at the time. I was just a little scared, but still ready to go. I probably should have run away. Uh, and as the Kumite began, this guy had a laser focus on punching me in the neck. Wow. And it was really, uh, he was very accurate, uh, surprisingly so. So every time we would sort of, you know, clash, he would punch me in the same spot in the neck. And so I just remember that. And uh, after I lost soundly, I had to sort of jog to the bathroom and try to maintain my composure where I hyperventilated for a while uh, and eventually kind of, you know, pulled myself back together so that I could come out and do forms or something like mm -hmm. that. So, wow. you know, a solid beat down is, is something that you don't forget. Oh, def, trust me, I know that. <laughs> so did you ever get involved at that first school in weapons at all? Yes. Uh, so Kobudo, uh, which is the Okinawan uh, sort of pantheon of weapons, mm -hmm. that was always something that was very important to us. And it was something that I personally enjoyed quite a bit. So uh, the Okinawa Kempo style, the previous sort of uh, head of the style was a gentleman named Odo Sakichi. And his instructor was a gentleman named Nakamura Shigeru. And Nakamura Sensei was sort of the progenitor of the style by its name. Of course, you know, during his era, which is sort of the 50s into the 60s, that's when a lot of karate style started to crystallize. Mm -hmm. And so Nakamura Sensei named his particular style, Okinawa Kempo. He wanted it to be sort of broad so that way it could become sort of a catch-all name for karate in general. Uh, it didn't work out that way. And ultimately, organizationally, Okinawa Kempo sort of split into its own thing, as many other styles did. So... Nakamura Sensei, when he passed away, uh, he had a son, Taketo, and then he also had Odo Sakichi. Taketo was sort of the familial inheritor, but Odo Sakichi was sort of named the next style head and sort of caretaker uh, for a while uh, of the style. So a lot of the Westerners who went over to Okinawa early on there in the 60s and 70s into the 80s, they studied with Odo Sensei uh, if they were near his dojo. So Odo Sensei became famous as a savant of kata. Now he was skilled in other areas, but that was sort of his standout skill set. And he became something of a collector of kata as well. So he knew, you know, somewhere in the in the realm of 20 to 30 empty hand kata, 20 to 30 kobudo kata, wow. and his reputation as a kobudo practitioner really is, is sort of what stood out on the island. So a lot of people that studied with him got a full pantheon of, of Kobudo. So things like the Bo and Sai, Tomfa, Nunchaku, Kama, Eku, Nunti, basically, you know, a lot of tools of the trade uh, were handed down by Odo Sensei to those individuals who studied with him. So by the time I arrived on the scene, that was the case. Uh, Kobudo was very uh, central to the style it was considered the other side of the coin to karate, and they were they were taught together. Nice. And what was your favorite weapon to work with? That's changed throughout the years. Okay. I, I've often found myself sort of sliding from one to the other. I would say bow is probably the one I'm drawn most to or most frequently to. We have a wide variety of bow kata, and I really like Odo Sensei's methodology of movement with the kata. He emphasized a lot of smoothness uh, and a lot of transition and sort of lighter stance work. So I find that Odo Sensei's methodology with the bow is not just very artful and enjoyable to, to do, but also very practical. So when I'm doing Kobudo Kumide, I find that his bow techniques uh, serve me very well. So that is probably my, my simple answer, although I have had stints where Kama, which is the sickle, and Sai and Tunfa, like they've all kind of taken their turn 
The only one I've never really gotten to that well is Nunchaku. I've just never really had a talent for it. Oh, okay. And that, see, and as a kid, that was my favorite. That, that's the mm-hmm. first weapon I picked up. But that's the same thing. As I got older, it changed. And I think for a long time, Bow Staff was my favorite just because it seemed to be the most practical. But mm-hmm. I've, I've always had a, a, a soft spot for uh, Tonfa. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know why, but I, I just that's always been one of my favorite to train with. So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's really, it's, it's an interesting, uh, unique weapon. There's nothing that really functions like it, talking about Tumfa. Mm-hmm. And it's just, a, it's just a pleasure to handle and, and to work with. And in terms of, you know, Kumite, I often find that I don't do as much spinning with the Tumfa as I do in Kata. I often find that I hold them in, in more standardized positions, you know, whether it's quote unquote blade edge out or handle out. Um, I find that a little bit more practical, but Kata helps us develop handling skill sets. So that way, whatever position we sort of find ourselves in, we can utilize. The Ninchaku, yeah, um, our kata was not very fancy uh, for the Ninchaku. It was more practical-minded. Okay. And it's when you start sparring with that as a weapon, I think it, it's much more difficult than Bruce Lee makes it look. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I'm decent with it, but yeah, definitely not Bruce Lee levels. So. <laughs> cool. You switched schools to another Okinawan Kempo school. So what led to that switch? Was that, did the other school close down? Were you just looking for something different that that school didn't have? Yeah. So my first school, the the instructor ended up finding himself in a bunch of legal troubles. Uh So obviously for the sake of, uh, you know, reputation and whatnot, I won't Mm -hmm. go into finer details, but it was something that was brewing over time. Uh, I, I did my best to to assist in, in, in either, you know, staying out of it or, or finding ways to, to be, helpful to the school, whether that means teaching classes or or just kind of helping with its operations. Mm-hmm. I tried to be as good a soldier as I could, but eventually it simply uh, was not a tenable situation, so I had to move on. Okay. So luckily uh, in the area, the gentleman who actually taught uh, my first instructor, a gentleman na- uh, named Bruce Heilman, uh, was in the area as well. So I was able to transition and, and begin studying directly under him. Uh, Heilman Sensei was a direct student of Odo Sakichi Sensei, so it was uh, fortunate for me that I could begin study directly under him and sort of be part of that lineage. And another bit of you know uh, happy coincidence, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rick Zanlo was instructing in Japanese swordsmanship at that school as well. Oh wow! And that was something that had always interested me, especially with the Kobodo background. Mm-hmm. The sword was always sort of peripheral. I was like, oh man, that would be kind of cool to learn sword as well, just to round out sort of my weaponry skill set. And uh, by luck, uh, Zanlo Sensei was teaching at that same school, so I, I was able to join both. That's awesome. Anytime you can branch out like that and, and incorporate more stuff into it, it's always good. You mentioned teaching class, so uh, what uh, what belt level uh, did you uh, start teaching and, and kind of what drew you to the teaching aspect of martial arts? Sure, yeah. So I started teaching when I was still around the brown belt level. And some of it was necessity uh, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I was needed as, as a, a resource. But also some of it was just my draw toward teaching. It was something that I always found myself enjoying. And I guess some of that is being just liking to sort of, when, when you're that age, you know, you're 15, 16 or so, just being the center of attention is nice. Uh, so yeah. that's, you know, that's the reality of it. You know, you get to stand up in front of the class and and teach stuff and share your opinions and, and crack some jokes and stuff like that. And so some people that sounds horrid. Uh, but to me, it sounded like a great opportunity to to just kind of stretch my legs there. So it was a little bit of a personality thing where I wanted to teach. I wanted to share. I wanted to, to get up there and, and, and try it out. And then there was necessity as well. 
So it was just a, a combination of those two things. And eventually, as I, I gained a little bit of more rank and, and experience, it deepened, right? It, it mm-hmm. wasn't quite so superficial. Uh, it became more of, I really enjoyed this sensation of I'm inheriting an art form. It's being given and gifted to me. Now I have an opportunity to help people as well and gift this further. So I started to deepen my philosophical understanding of what the martial arts can be. And that's when I really started falling in love with the teaching aspect, the sharing aspect, and the learning aspect. It kind of rejuvenated me that way. And I started getting a sense of like, okay, this is really worth my time, my investigation. And if I can pass it on, I'm part of a chain of something that has meaning in people's lives. Right. So it took me a couple of years to develop that maturity. Uh, it certainly wasn't there at first, but that, that's kind of what it grew into. And then when you switched to the new school, did you continue the teaching there? Yeah, I, I began assisting fairly early on. I certainly wasn't needed as uh, as much mm-hmm. uh, as I was at the first school, so it wasn't as much of a necessity. However, I was able to jump in and, and take an, uh, you know one night a week and, and start teaching there and eventually started taking on more and more responsibility there as well, just that, um, because as my experience grew and, and rank grew and my capabilities grew, as I sort of entered into my 20s, I started leaning more toward the entrepreneurial aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Just being interested in how does this dojo work? How can we make it work better? How do businesses work? Um, it was just kind of a confluence of interest there as well. Nice. So now when you went to college now a few years later, now were you able to keep up your training in college? Did you stay at the same school? Did you do something on campus? How did that work? Yeah, it was tricky at first. Mm-hmm. So my first year of college, I went to a different area. I went away and lived on campus for that first year. So I was able to get back occasionally. I would say, you know, once every couple of weeks, I would find myself in the dojo. So it was one of those blessings in disguise because I had to learn how to train on my own. And I think that's something that everybody encounters eventually in their martial arts career when they hang on long enough, either their location changes, their job changes, their schedule changes, you know, it's really difficult to have a consistent schedule throughout your entire life. I think very few people achieve that. So it was a schedule change for me, location change. And uh, so I had to learn kind of how to train on my own and, and, and what does that look like? What does that feel like? And then eventually I moved back into the area and went to a campus that was closer to home, closer to the dojo. And I was able to attend a class and teach much more regularly again. So when you were on campus, did you attempt to look for another place to train? Was there any schools near there at all that just didn't interest you or? No, there was nothing nearby. Um, so this was 2002 is when I is when I first joined, okay. uh, is when I went to college there. And, you know, dojo were, were more prevalent at that time, but not as prevalent, of course, as they are today. Obviously, right. the, the, the quantity continues to grow, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. And so, no, there was just nothing near, nearby, nothing that interested me, nothing that uh, I don't even know if there was literally any dojo, but I can definitely wow. say nothing that caught my attention. Okay. Nowadays, it seems like every college campus has at least one martial arts class on it somewhere. So, but I know back then, I mean, like I said, when I went, I went to college a little, a little before you, I went about 10, year, <laughs> 10, 10, 10 years before you, I started college in 92, but uh, we had two on the college. I, I was within about 10 miles of three colleges. One of them had one class, two of them had one class and one of them had two, um, mm-hmm. but only one of them was for a credit. The other ones were just like clubs and they had a hard, to, hard to get to. But I had, I had the option when I went to college of uh, traditional Taekwondo, Shotokan, Aikido, and for a short time, the campus I was on had a style called uh, Joku Kai. 
Hmm, okay. which I knew nothing about other than my, my friend joined it. And for his green belt test, he had to get kicked in the groin. I think it was 10 times without changing oh, his facial expression. And the, oh the worst part was is he did it. He passed, got his green belt. And then he quit a week later. I'm like, why didn't you quit two weeks ago? <laughs> so Absolutely. But shortly after that, they got kicked off campus. So I don't think the school knew they were doing that. So. Yeah, yikes. Um, I mean, if it was for his black belt and he was like, okay, this is the final hurdle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for green belt, that seems fairly negligible. Do you know, did he ever talk about like, did they ever teach techniques of um, tightening up the thighs so that way you're not taking the, the damage directly, uh, you know, in the groin area? Or was it basically just take 10 kicks to the groin and good luck? If I remember it, and I could be remembering completely wrong, because like I said, this was like 30 years ago, but I could have sworn it was something to do with these breathing <laughs> exercises and working these muscles to actually pull testicles up inside. <laughs> so yeah, they, were, they weren't there when you got kicked. <laughs> I've heard of that. Um, I don't know how legitimate that is. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I, I assume there are some humans that can do yeah. that. I don't know how common a skill set that is. The two ways that I'm most familiar with in terms of handling that is, one, you sort of set your stance up so that way the inner thighs are protecting you so yep. it's not a super wide stance. Or the other one is you kind of you roll the hips forward so that way you're taking the damage sort of on the lower butt area. Yeah. Um, it, it, but it, it gives the appearance that you're taking a groin kick. Right. Those are the two that I'm aware of, but I don't know. I mean, sometimes <laughs> who's to say that teacher was aware of any of those methods? Exactly. I, like yeah. I said, I, I never wanted to try it. So. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. Which Did you end up joining any of those classes? I, I That one, I did the traditional Taekwondo and I did the Aikido for a while. Aikido cool. was tough because the Aikido was five days a week every morning at 7 a.m. Uh, uh, which yeah, as yeah, an 18 yeah. year old is mm-hmm. rough. I, I did it for like six to eight months and barely missed any classes, but it just got to the point where, you know, I was a college kid. So I was probably staying up till three, four in the morning <laughs> and then to get up yeah. at seven and get thrown around and then go to class at nine was kind of tough. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean the first, the first year I went to college, I mistakenly took classes at like a seven and eight in the oh. morning and then I quickly realized, hey, this is under my control. I don't need to do uh-huh. this. Like, those were my worst grades by far. Yep. Uh, I'm terrible to this day at waking up early. I still, ma- you know, I organize my life around not waking up early. So why, why do it? Why put yourself through that? So yeah, I don't, I would not, I don't even think I would have signed up for that Aikido class, honestly. And that wasn't even a class. It was just, it was a club. He, the guy who taught it wasn't a black belt. He was second Q. So he's right before black and he, it was 10 bucks a month. And I'm like, you know, hey, if anything, I'll learn how to fall and roll properly and, and things yep. like that, which I did in those, you know, six to eight months. So I mean, it was worth it for the time, but it just got to be tough. And then I think I ended up, I think what happened was I ended up with an 8 a.m. class and I just couldn't make it work anymore. So, yeah, because yeah. one, one class I needed for a credit had to be 8 a.m. So, of course. No, I actually think that's a really good foundational thing to learn. Like, I think a lot of karate folk, um, I, I speak, you know, I'm speaking about karate just because that's mm-hmm. my background. So I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn for other styles that I'm not as familiar with. But for karate folk, I think they kind of skip the learning how to fall phase um, mm-hmm. because they're so focused on on striking, tripping, joint locking, stuff like that. So they often skip the learning how to fall phase. And then if they find themselves getting tackled or taken down or something like that, they're not particularly good at taking that fall. So I think a little bit of cross training in Aikido or Jiu-Jitsu or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or something like that, even if it's just a couple months, yep. just to break yourself into it. Uh, I find that to be a very good idea, and I, I make that recommendation for a lot of folks. Agreed. And what's funny is that that first Taekwondo instructor I have, who 
Uh, if you've listened to any of my previous episodes, I describe him as John Kreese. So that'll, that'll <laughs> tell you a lot. But he he tried to yep, yep. He, he tried to force me to quit Aikido. He tried basically saying, I'm going to, because I was taking Taekwondo for credit. And he's like, you cannot study with another, st- blah, blah. I, I, he threatened to fail me, which I went to the school and they told him he couldn't. But it was funny. He tried to get me to quit. And then like two weeks later in Taekwondo, they were teaching falling and rolling. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> yeah. guess what I know how to do already? <laughs> so. Yeah, it's one one thing I realized um, when writing the Tales from the Western Generation book, and and just kind of getting to know a lot of these kinds of guys, and just doing research, not necessarily about the interview guests in the book, but just kind of doing research at large for that. We would like to think that a lot of those instructors in that era were Mr. Miyagi types, <laughs> but in reality, the John Kreese types were way more common, and unfortunately, the John Kreese types generally had the bigger schools, yeah. so they produced more John Kreese types. So we see a lot of that. Um, I think the current generation of people, courtesy of technology, uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, the ability to communicate, I think a lot of these pockets of uh, m- you know inappropriate martial arts, they're getting a little bit more exposed. Uh, and people are learning that a lot of these practices that were made uh, and popularized in those early generations of Americans bringing karate, judo, taekwondo into the United States, they had a lot of bad ideas. Yeah, and it's sort of coming to light now, and it's a much harder to hide abuse now, and it's much harder to hide ideas that they made up just for fun, or <laughs> it was something they got out of the Marine Corps and just you know lost and slid it into a traditional martial art. Uh, much tougher to hide that stuff now. I would agree. And I've been lucky in all my you know, 38 years of martial arts. I've had one John Kreese. I've had mm-hmm. probably for sure one Miyagi, maybe two. And I've probably had some Johnny Lawrence's who weren't bad. So <laughs> I've, <laughs> right, I've kind of right. run, the, run the gamut there a little bit. But, but Yeah, it's, it's a spectrum. <laughs> now, now, you mentioned the book, which I definitely want to get to. But first, which came first, the blog or the book? I'm assuming the blog. Correct. Yeah, the okay. blog definitely came first. Let's talk uh, by, talk by, about by. that a little bit and kind of how that started and what led you to it. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Um, So this would have been around 2008 and I was developing my skills for writing, web development, search engine optimization, that kind of stuff at a small startup company that I was working for. So this was the first uh, real job that I got out of college. Uh, It was at a company called Classic Wines. Uh, There were six of us in that company. I knew absolutely nothing about wine, but luckily we had one person on staff that did. So my job was to kind of transfer his knowledge onto the website, develop articles, develop videos, develop uh, different ways for our stuff to be seen. And so just as a course of by working for a small startup, I had to perform a variety of different skills. And actually, a friend of mine at that time uh, was a woman who had started a blog on her own. And so she was kind of chronicling her journey up through kind of the green belt range, you know, aiming for Shodan. And at that point, I was probably like a Sandan. And I was watching her chronicle it. And I was asking her some questions like, hey, what kind of feedback are you getting from this? What do you what is this like for you? And we just kind of started collaborating a little bit. And she was she was just informing me about what the blogging world was like. And eventually I decided to take the plunge and I was able to make a website on my own because I had developed that skill set. I had a variety of ideas that I felt like maybe I could create a voice that would be interesting. One thing I knew early on was that I was not going to be the most senior, most experienced, wisest person out there, Mm. uh, just as a result of my years in training and my age and stuff like that. So 
But I did feel like I might be able to fill a niche and talk about things that I didn't think were being talked about, or at least present them from a different angle. And I believe that that is what I ultimately achieved. So there was a lot of trial and error early on. What kind of content did people find interesting? So I did like some research and and background on some kata. I did some personal philosophical type of posts. I did some fun stuff. I don't know if you caught this, but at the time, uh, there was a show called like um, Ultimate Warrior or World's Greatest Warrior or something like that. They would pit two different histories like warriors against each other. Mm -hmm. So it would be like they would analyze what a Spartan was like versus a samurai versus like a pirate, you know, and so they would just like or a medieval knight. And then they would like run this algorithm that said like, okay, if you analyzed their armor and their weapons and stuff like that, who would generally come out on top? Uh, does that ring a bell at all to you? It sounds familiar. I don't know if I've ever watched. I don't think I watched the whole thing, but that definitely sounds familiar. So what I would do is I would just like take analysis of those episodes. I'd be nice. like, okay, here's what, you know, I'd be like, here's what I'm seeing. Uh, I, I, they kind of forgot about this or they didn't mention that. And, and so I would just kind of do little pop culture posts as well. And then as the years went on, I, I started doing interviews myself just because I started to get to know more and more interesting people in the karate world. And then eventually it expanded beyond that as well. So I was just interested in learning about people's stories, you know, much like yourself and just getting to know, you know, what was out there. And, and these new technologies were kind of bursting onto the scene. Eventually, I found my way onto Facebook as well. You know, this was still coming out of the phase where where Facebook was either for college students or just past that point where it was for the public. So it was an early technology, and I was kind of learning that on the fly as well. Obviously, we've seen the beast that Facebook has evolved into, and I'm not really (laughs) too involved with it anymore. But at the time, it was an interesting technology. When you first started, were you trying to do, were you trying to be consistent? Were you trying to do like weekly articles, daily, monthly? I mean, was it pretty random and sporadic? Yeah, I did set a schedule for myself. So at the very beginning, I set a schedule of every other week. Okay. So one thing I think that people make the mistake of, and I'm I'm curious what your opinion is on this in terms of the podcasting Mm -hmm. form, but I think it's easy to set a schedule that's unrealistic at first because you're really hyped up about the project. Mm -hmm. So you're like, okay, I'm going to do one post a week or two posts a week or one post every day or something like that. And you just set a super ambitious schedule. That was, I was trying to avoid that. So I set a schedule of one post every other week and I was able to maintain that for a couple of years. And then eventually I dropped that down. Once I felt like I had gotten a lot of that early energy out of my system, I dropped it down to one post a month. And I maintained that until about 2018, at which time, uh, actually, no, around 2016 is when I, I uh, the book became serious. Okay. So the book, the book started taking up a bunch more time. And then eventually around 2018, I kind of backed off from the blogging just because I mean, go into greater detail. I just felt like I, I needed to shift my attention elsewhere. So and now, now it's basically just whenever the mood strikes me. Okay. As far as me, so it's a little different because I, I kind of knew what I was getting into because I had a radio background. I had worked on some syndicated radio shows, and I kind of knew what it takes. And I had a, another podcast, too, that started before this one, and I knew I wanted to do weekly. I wanted to be consistent. I wanted to make sure people knew every week they'd get a new episode, a new episode. So between my two podcasts, my other one that I do that has nothing to do with martial arts, this morning just released episode 146. And I have not missed a week yet. That's great. <laughs> and yeah. the martial arts one tomorrow, episode 97 comes out. Um, and I have, That's not, great, I have yeah. not missed a week. Technically 98 if you count the intro episode. 
you know, 98 straight weeks, I've not missed an episode. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's great that you, you kind of had the, the muscle memory coming into it. Right. So it yeah. wasn't like you weren't just jumping in and hoping for the best. You kind of knew what, what skills and what muscles you needed to make it work. And one thing I did that a lot of people fail to do is plan ahead. So mm-hmm. with, with my one other podcast I do, it's, it's a music based one. That's they're shorter episodes. They're like anywhere from eight to 15 minutes with that one. I had 44 episodes fully recorded and produced before I started doing them. So I had almost a year's worth done. Mm. And then I just started throwing out one a week. And then my martial arts one, I had 22 done fully recorded, fully edited, ready to go. So I knew I wouldn't be stressing to get them out. And only twice have I come close to missing a deadline. There was one where yeah. I was still up till three in the morning editing to get one ready because I fell behind, <laughs> fell behind and was struggling to find a few interviews and stuff. And I'm like, yeah. right, right now I'm, I'm a, you know, about a month ahead. I think you'll be episode like 103 or 104 maybe. So yeah, I'm a little, little over a month ahead right now, which is a, a good place to be. <laughs> and depending who you talk to, a lot of them are like, oh, then it won't be, it won't be relative content. Well, it's like not everything we talk about in here is time sensitive. <laughs> We're talking sure. about people's life and their journeys and stuff. And if, if I have a celebrity who's coming on and they want to plug a specific movie, I'll work a little harder and get their episode out sooner if they want to or something. So, which I've done a few times. Yeah, this isn't like a sports podcast where you need to talk about last weekend's games or something like that. Exactly, It's it's not the same thing. Yeah, like my buddy does a sports betting podcast, and he does it daily. (laughs) He started in August, and he hasn't missed one yet. But after about like four months, he's like, this is hard. (laughs) Like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's only like a six-minute podcast, but he's doing it every single day to get it out, and he has to do it at a certain time when, like, Mm -hmm. he knows what games are coming on and what this is, and I'm like, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, no, that's intense. Like you really got to have that down, down pat. You know, it, it's like the uh, the the late night uh, TV hosts and stuff like that. Like if you don't have the the wherewithal to get out there every day, like it takes a special kind of person to do that. That is correct. Was it the blog that made you decide to write a book, or did that come from someplace else? What kind of led to that decision? I think the blog was definitely uh, what led toward it. So throughout the course of, of writing the blog and, and building an audience through that. I started doing interviews and I started sort of traveling a bit more with my training and getting to know new people. And it just kind of became evident that there was a need for uh, hearing about these kind of people and recording their stories in an interesting way. One thing that always occurred to me was I enjoy history, especially the history of martial arts. And I'm sure you've encountered this. And I imagine most of our listeners here have encountered this. You don't have to go back too far before martial arts history gets extremely nebulous. There's a lot of stories, a lot of contradictory stories, uh, word of mouth, rumors. Was this guy doing this? Was this uh, woman doing this? Who actually came up with XYZ? And so you can go back two or three generations and it's basically just foggy, not a lot of recorded information or misinformation. Mm -hmm. So, man, this really makes research difficult. Why would we make the same mistake now? So we have all these people who are alive. A lot of the individuals who first went over to Japan and Okinawa and studied there for various amounts of time, some people for a short amount of time, six months, some people for a long amount of time, a couple of years, brought the art back and they're still with us. So why don't we try to record some of these stories so that way in their own words, they can tell us a little bit about it, tell us what it was like. We don't have to guess. Now, I, I did name the book very intentionally Pales from the Western Generation because mm-hmm. we can't necessarily 
assume that everything that every person says is true, historically accurate, down to the second. Exactly. Sometimes they're just remembering stuff that happened 40 years ago. Sometimes they're flavoring their stories to sort of suit their needs. And we have to accept that. That's part of reality. So the point of having these many stories is you can triangulate. If three or four people um, who were there say one thing happened and one person over on, on the fringes say something else happened, well, historically speaking, we can kind of triangulate and say, in, in all likelihood, you know, situation A probably happened. So that was kind of my thinking. Uh, the blog definitely started it off with those interviews. And I just wanted something more formal on the record that people could refer back to when they're doing research or when I'm doing research. Nice. And, and how was the book received? Well, I think it was received well. Yeah, uh, it was. I think whenever you're doing a passion project like that, you have to take the money mindset out of it. So this is not something that is a big money maker. Never has been, uh, never will be. It's a niche market. This isn't like a Bruce Lee's book or something like mm -hmm. that, where you're going to sell you know, thousands of copies every year and, and, and his, his estate will, will benefit for that in perpetuity. Not, not like that. Uh, this is a very niche book. It's for researchers, it's for historians, for people who are interested in uh, this particular group of people. But within that niche, uh, it was well-received. Um, I was very happy with it. Uh, minimum amount of trolling, uh, minimum amount of people sending me nasty grams. You're <laughs> going to get some of that. Anytime you put anything out, you're going to get some of that. Yep. I'm curious about the nasty grams you've gotten for this podcast because those are always fun stories. But yeah, so so minimal trolling, mostly positive. I've actually been lucky. I've not really, one of the guests I had was kind of controversial. And, and I, <laughs> you know, one or two people said some stuff, but nothing bad. You know, they basically just, basically just said, I'm not listening. And another one is an episode I never released. And I'll, I'll tell you that story when we're done. <laughs> just okay, interesting. Just because yeah. I don't know if it ever will be. So it's yeah. kind of a long story. Well, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do our best toward the end of our episode here to set a new troll record. We'll just go over a bunch <laughs> of controversial topics. Hey, there we go. And then what about, now you've written two other books too, right? What were those about? So I've helped edit and publish a couple other books. Okay. So the, the only book that's really got my name on it is the Tales book. Mm -hmm. And then a couple digital books yeah. that I put out through the podcast. Yeah. So there's like a best of, um, there was a, a, a short history book about Nakamura sensei. There was a, a book called um, surviving a traditional dojo. It was basically just common sense advice for how to avoid dojo problems. Like how to, how to spot a dojo that's not worth your time. You know, just kind of practical advice. Oh, that one was interesting when I saw it I and mean, I kind of read about it. I thought that was kind of a cool idea. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I guess I don't consider it that big a deal, but hopefully it's still helping some people. Yeah. And then, like I said, you started the company to help other people publish. So how, you know, what are some of the ones people you've got to work with and how can people of course get a hold of you if they want to maybe publish something? Sure. Yeah. I, I'm lucky. I've gotten a chance to work with some cool people and, and this kind of was born out of the publishing of the first book, the Tales book. So when I was writing that, I was courting a few publishing houses, uh, basically to see um, what kind of distribution they could provide. I had a built-in audience, so I had a little bit of leverage there in terms of uh, publishing house interest. Because, you know, with these publishing houses, they want to make investments that they think will give proper return. Right. So if you have an existing audience, they're more likely to, to take a chance on you, especially for your first major, major product. So I had a couple of publishing houses that were interested, but ultimately I decided to self-publish. And that's a crossroad, I think, for everybody who's thinking about making a published work. Yep. Because if you go the traditional publishing house route, you get a lot of their distribution, which is awesome. 
However, they take a significant cut of each unit. So you're making less profit on each unit. Or you can go the self-publishing route. It's more difficult. You have to do more manual labor. You have to learn new technologies in order to get it listed on Amazon. However, you uh, get to keep a much more significant share of each unit sold. So when I was thinking about this, I was very capable of handling the technological side of it just because of my background in web development, writing, marketing, stuff like that. I had the built-in audience, so I didn't need the distribution as much. So I just decided to go the self-publishing route. And ultimately, I think that was a satisfying way to go. Although I think both routes are still valid. Because of that, because of the self-publishing route, a couple of the people I had met along the journey of blogging and writing and training uh, were interested in publishing as well. But they certainly didn't want to go through the rigmarole of learning the technology, you know, learning how to do the, the publishing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided to form a small publishing house uh, called Apsos Publishing just to help them out and, and to sort of be part of that that situation and, and help them along the way. So I kind of became an editor and a proofreader and a graphic designer and a publisher uh, for those individuals. So uh, one, one person is a gentleman named Larry Isaac, who is a senior in Okinawa Kempo. I think anybody who is familiar with, with Okinawa Kempo as an art would, would definitely recognize that name. Uh, he's one of the most senior guys in the United States and at this point in the world in that style. So a uh, cool guy, um, really fun to work with. He's a, he's a bust your chops kind of guy. So that always makes it nice and fun. <laughs> and then I also worked with a gentleman named uh, Jason Perry. Uh, he is this, the son of Doug Perry. And uh, most folks in the karate world know who Doug Perry is because he's one of the most senior Shorinryu practitioners in the world. And uh, a lot of a lot of respect and a lot of dignity uh, uh, with him. So Jason was writing a book that chronicled his father's journey as well as his own journey in training and in military study. That was a father-son military sort of thing. And you know, he was kind of chronicling the similarities and the differences between that journey. So getting a chance to work with him was really cool. I mean, he was a Jason himself is an extremely sharp dude, um, highly accomplished in the military, highly accomplished uh, as a writer. And uh, just basically an overachiever uh, in everything he does. So it was a pleasure to get to meet him and know him better. Nice. So yeah, got got a chance to meet and, and interact with some some neat people. Any plans for you of writing another book? Definitely, but I'm not sure which one I'm going to do. So I've got a couple manuscripts that are in sort of the outline phase. Okay. Uh, I'm leaning. It's one of those things where it's like when you undertake a, a book project. You need to have your heart, soul, and back into it. Otherwise, you're going to find a million excuses not to do it. Right. For anyone who's read the book, um, The War of Art, I think that really describes it best. And if you're a creative type, whether that's a podcaster, an artist, a writer, a graphic designer, what have you, I highly recommend that book. It's by Stephen Pressfield. It's called The War of Art. And it really describes what it's like to undertake a serious artistic endeavor. And the way that you can self-sabotage along the way, the way that you can get distracted, you can find yourself finding reasons and excuses to not do it. Your body can make you feel sick or, or, or incapable. You know, there's all these ways that you can sort of self-sabotage. Mm -hmm. So when you take on a major project, whether that's training related or writing related or whatever, you need to make sure your heart and soul is in it because you're going to need to overcome a wide variety of hurdles. So I say that just to say this. Whichever book project I pick next, I need to make sure I'm all the way in. And when I've made that decision and I'm all the way in, there's no looking back. It's a one direction. 
So I take it very seriously. And that's why I'm sort of dabbling with a few outlines, getting myself set up. So that way, when I make that commitment, it's a one-way street. Nice. Well, I look forward to it. I'm I'm actually, uh, I've never really studied. I mean, I have a friend who teaches Okinawan karate. I've never really studied any of the Okinawan. I'm thinking of ordering your book. I just, I love adding <laughs> books to my martial arts library. <laughs> so I'll pretty much read any martial arts book. So. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And from, I think from, at the very least, you'll get to learn about some, some cool people yeah. and so a bit of American history. So uh, at the beginning of the book, I go into sort of how martial arts became popularized in the United States, oh, cool. how it starts with judo. It sort of becomes taekwondo and karate, and then sort of how it evolves from there. So even, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the book, there may be some value. I'll look forward to it. Now, one thing I forgot to ask you now, I'm assuming you, know, you still get to train. Do you still teach much? I do still train. Uh, I train every week. I, okay. I'm, I I keep a very consistent schedule. However, uh, due to my recent travels, uh, my wife and I have moved a number of times over the past few years, mm-hmm. take opportunities for, for work and stuff like that. Now, my company operates digitally, so I kind of work wherever I land, but she got a, a really nice job opportunity out here in Colorado. So we're a little mobile at the moment, so I'm not doing a ton of teaching. I organized some training gatherings with with friends uh, back in Pennsylvania. Uh, might set something up like that out here in Colorado just to kind of keep myself exposed to different folks. Nice. But not a ton of teaching right now. Um, I, I maintain a strict training schedule that I don't deviate from and I make sure I continue to do. But yeah, it's an interesting sort of uh, self-reflective uh, time. It reminds me of when I first went out to college and I had to learn how to train by myself for the very first time. <laughs> I suppose, uh, yeah. I'm kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a full circle where I'm learning how to do that all over again. How do I deepen my understanding of my art with what I was given, use technology to my advantage in order to continue getting input, but at the same time, continuing to progress. It's an interesting challenge. Okay. Think back to when you were a brown belt to now. What has changed about your teaching style the most over the years? <laughs> uh, I think I'm probably much more careful about the jokes I tell at this point. <laughs> so, nice. yeah. Um, uh, what, what's your what's your curse acceptability on this podcast? Do we keep it clean? Yeah, I've had people swear before. I mean, it, it's it's fine. But I mean, okay. I know after a certain point, I have to mark it like not clean. So, <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's I'm keep fine. it clean then. Okay. Let's keep it clean. Okay. So uh, early on in that brown belt range, um, you know, we're talking about me uh, in my teens. So a, a lot of jokes, a lot of sort of um, butt busting, <laughs> that kind of stuff. That was definitely a part of, of my teaching style. I think I was good enough at it that people enjoyed it, but I'm also confident enough that there were times when I was stepping out of line. So uh, my teaching style now is much more professional. I still like to try to inject humor where possible. And I do like to gently make fun of people, but it's a a much more uh, polished sort of uh, (laughs) uh, low key. So because I also think that no one should have to go to the dojo and basically endure a roast. Uh, you know, we're not we're not hazing people, uh, and that's that's one thing where I think classical dojo compared to uh, boot camp style dojo, I think that's a, a really key difference. Where training should be difficult, it should challenge you. You should have to grow as a person, both in terms of your physical endurance as well as your mental endurance. These are all things that are true, but that doesn't mean you should go to a dojo and get abused. Right. Um, it shouldn't be something where you're getting, you know, you have to line up and get attacked 20 times. And if you can crawl back into the dojo next week, great. Not really what I think uh, the dojo should be doing. And 
I think there's a key difference in, in mindset here, which makes it its own unique thing, which is a good dojo should help you improve your lifespan and your health span. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to train you the way it might uh, a samurai might have trained, you know, thousands of years ago, where it was basically like, let's prepare you for battle. We've got six weeks with you. We need to get you battle ready. We're going to train you as hard as we can. So that way you go out there and hopefully survive. That's a different kind of training. Right. And that's still very valid in modern military training. However, I think a lot of dojo, uh, especially on Okinawa, which was a lot less militaristic, and in modern day sort of civilian style, it should teach you how to protect yourself. It should teach you how to increase your endurance, but it should also teach you things that increase your health span. It should teach you things like healthful practices, breathing, stretching, endurance, training, diet, exercise, mindset. You should be trying to uh, live and grow with it, and your art should be able to grow with you as well. So the way that you teach, sure, that's going to change. The way that you train, that should definitely change. Um, the way I teach someone who's 50 years old is going to be a little different than someone who's 15 years old. Right. The body needs to develop in a different way. The mind needs to develop in a different way. The life experience that's kicking in, it's going to change. And so a lot of the traditional, or I should say classical Okinawan dojo, they understood this. They knew that the people who were walking in, you had to customize the training to where that person was emotionally, mentally, physically. So that way the art could pick them up, enhance them, and then allow them to grow further. So if an 11-year-old walks, 11 walks into the dojo who's had a bunch of emotional trauma, not saying that was me, but that could certainly be the case, they need to be brought up and they need to be delivered content and material in a different way than a 30-year-old who's having trouble, he's got a job, he or she has a job as a bouncer, and they need a different skill set, ASAP, right? So these are very different environments. So I would say that the way I teach has gotten more customized. I've realized the distinction between learning things that are appropriate for someone who's young and just trying to develop the foundational body of musculature versus someone who's further along and how do we optimize the actual function of the body. So yeah, I, I'd say that that's probably um, the way I've evolved in that way. That's a great answer. Nice. All right. So I'm curious on this one just because of your book. So what are like one or two tips you'd give someone who's thinking of getting involved in martial arts for the first time in their life? They know nothing about it. Just a couple of tips on, you know, hey, what should I look for in a school? And maybe some one or two things I should avoid. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So a couple of things to look for. First of all, the Internet is an incredible resource. A lot of people that had to join a school early on, uh, you know, through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, they kind of had to guess and hope for the best. However, uh, now things have evolved such that almost every dojo has some sort of online presence. They've got a bank of reviews. They've got photos and videos. And now not every dojo, of course, not every school, but a lot of them do. So the research has to start online. And one thing I would say is, first, ask yourself what it is you're really looking for. Identify that first. So a lot of things that people commonly are looking for is self-defense, self-confidence, fitness, philosophy, culture, whatever it is in that set of things you're looking for, that's going to dictate what you start to identify in schools. So if you're looking for culture and philosophy and uh, that sort of thing, then you start looking at schools that sort of demonstrate that in their bios. 
So if a school has a, a strong lineage going back to Japan or China or Korea or Okinawa, and that East Asian culture is something you're very interested in, okay, then you want to start leaning in that direction. If you're looking for something that can help you develop a fighting skill set, then, well, every dojo should do that. But like, what's the immediacy of that need? Because something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or MMA, you might get thrown into the fire much quicker. Whereas a traditional karate or Aikido or Iaido school, it, it depends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a, an Aikido school, they'll, they'll ease you in uh, through falls um, and rolls. And, and again, that's school to school basis. You know, I've seen and, and experienced some Aikido schools that you're thrown into the deep end right away and, and good luck. Don't land on your head. Yep. So it really comes on a school to school basis. So first of all, step one, identify what it is you're looking for. That, that'll guide you in a general direction. Then you absolutely have to visit it and get a vibe. So if you visit and watch, I recommend two, watching two sessions before joining. Some people are, are, they know what they're looking at after one. So definitely go and watch. See what kind of vibe you're looking for. If you want something that's more relaxed and, and, and chill, cool. Um, you can find that. If you're looking for something that's regimented and, and difficult and it's going to challenge you, you can find that too. One thing I would say to look out for is in modern martial arts, there's a distinction between schools that are designed for children and schools that are not. So if you have a child that's you know entering into the art, then you can go to a school and you'll find all the telltale signs of a school that's very friendly for children. You'll see lots of games and balloons and pool noodles and, and stuff like that. And, and great, there, there's a time and a place for that. If you are an adult and you're looking to join a dojo, keep an eye out for that stuff. And maybe you want to avoid that. Or you want to clarify, hey, I see you've got the kids stuff going on. Is there also a segment of your dojo that's dedicated purely to adults? Because if you're an adult and you're trying to increase your skill set or increase your cultural uh, knowledge, but you have to hang out with five-year-olds and do the jump the noodle game, then you're not really getting what you need. So that's something I would look out for as well. And then I guess my final tip is just to inspect the instructor very closely, keep an eye on what they demand. If they are someone who demands that you basically have a feudal style loyalty to the dojo where you don't speak to people from other dojos, you don't interact with other dojos. Uh, Obviously, Brian, you encountered this early Mm -hmm. on. That's a red flag. You want to look out for that. You also want to be careful about how they interact with younger students. If you have an, uh, this is just statistical likelihood here. So if you have an adult, older male teacher who spends a lot of time and attention to teenage and younger women, that's a red flag. And there's a history of abuse in martial arts schools for that kind of behavior. So you want to be watching out for that early on. You know, have your red flag meter up so that way you can walk away before you get too far into a dojo. So it's worth inspecting. It's worth getting people's opinions on, checking around, you know, communicating with people, catching some word of mouth. And then even after you join, be careful that you weren't sold a bill of goods early on. And then after the first six months, now behavior is starting to change. Now you're not liking what you're seeing. So those are a couple thoughts. Some good tips there. I like that. All right. So as a traditional martial artist, what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think for a lot of people, uh, I'm 38 as as of the time of this recording. Mm-hmm. A lot of people my age and my generation, they're not as uh, violently opposed to one versus the other in terms of a classical art or a modern art. And, and obviously, this is a broad brush. So there are plenty of people who still draw those lines. Right. But I think when you actually look at the history of karate itself, you see a lot of mixing going on. So 
you see uh, Japanese influence, you see a lot of Chinese influence, you see some Korean influence. And so this skill set is actually much more diverse than you might uh, first assume. So I think, especially with karate, people see a lot of the kicks and the punches and the, and the board breaking and whatnot. And that's kind of what gets the attention. But in a classical karate style, you're getting a lot of joint locking, a lot of tripping, uh, a lot of off balancing, a lot of throwing, punching, kicking, open hand, closed hand, grabbing, pushing, pulling. So a lot of these skill sets are exhibited in a quote unquote traditional style. They just don't get as much press because they're not as good for competition and they, um, they haven't been spread as widely. Because speaking of karate specifically, the easiest thing to teach is the punching and kicking. So if you're at a karate school for six months, you're going to learn a few kata, you'll learn the punching and kicking, and then you'll kind of move on with your life. And so if you go and you open a dojo in another country, you're teaching the punching and kicking and the kata, and that's about it. And then all of a sudden, two generations go by, all you've got is the punching, kicking, and kata, and you think that's all there needs to be. So no, of course not. So I personally like to cross train and stay exposed to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu, MMA type of material, just so that way I know what else is out there and I can sense what my weaknesses are. And so I think that's all MMA and some of those other more modern styles. That's really all they're trying to do. Now, the funny thing is what we're going to see in the next 10, 15 or 20 years is we're going to see the modern arts encounter the same problems as what happened with the traditional arts. So modern arts are going to start to have rank inflation. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu right now has a really, they've done an amazing job of keeping quality and rank. So if you're a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that's really meaningful. That was the case in the 60s and 70s for karate. If you got a black belt in karate, that was very meaningful. Over time, rank inflation occurs and people who, you know, were happy with Shodan in the 70s, they decided to give themselves a couple more ranks. Okay, now I'm an eighth dan, now I'm a ninth dan, now I'm a tenth dan, okay. So what does that mean at that point now that there's so many eighth, ninth, and tenths? Well, it means a lot less. Mm-hmm. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Jiu-Jitsu, MMA, they're all going to go through this. This is what's coming for them. So eventually there's going to be something else that's new and MMA is going to kind of be the old busted and whatever's new, new is going to look fresh and interesting. But what's important for each individual person is to understand there is a certain amount of open-mindedness that you want, but don't be too quick to abandon a style that has depth. So as you continue your training, you can start to feel, okay, I'm bumping up against a wall here. I don't think there's anything more to this style that I'm studying, at least not in the way that it's being transmitted to me. You have to make a decision. Okay, am I going to bounce to something else? Or am I going to find a way to increase the depth of my understanding of this art? Right now, the traditional arts, karate, aikido, iaido, kendo, whatever, kendo more, you know, the more sporting aspect. But if you're in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, guess what? You're going to come across this eventually too. It's coming for you. Mm -hmm. So you have to decide, okay, what's the depth here? How do I keep studying this? How do I increase my understanding of this while maintaining exposure to other arts? So my my best recommendation is, yeah, I I love, uh, I have love for MMA and, and modern arts. However, I feel very fortunate that I'm in a traditional, uh, I, I consider what I do classical. I'm in a classical style that includes things like a, a combination of, of Western understanding with traditional Chinese understanding, breathing, philosophical elements, cultural elements, so that the depth of what I can study can grow with me and my body can continue to develop and be healthful 
And this is something that I can do into my, if I'm lucky enough to still be alive in my 70s, 80s and beyond, this is something that can continue to grow with me, continue to be effective and continue to be worthwhile. So for those individuals who are pure traditionalists and don't want anything to do with the modern arts, I would caution them to not fall too far into a singular mindset and become exposed in terms of their weaknesses. For individuals who think just the modern arts are worthwhile, I would caution you to ask yourself how this is going to grow with you. Um, If you're banging in an MMA dojo and you're fighting really hard, what's phase two and phase three in your life? Can you keep doing it when you're 70? If not, do you have kata to continue your body to move and to grow and to circulate that blood and that oxygen? Can you get kata? Uh, If so, I would advise it. So the cross-pollination of the two, I think as we continue to grow and age, I think they're going to come closer together. And and I think we're all going to sort of see the value in both. I love that answer. All right. So you mentioned philosophical. So I'm curious, in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy that rises to the top? One that you keep coming back to with an important part of your life? Yeah. So uh, this is one thing that I I have seen both demonstrated and not demonstrated. And and the key cornerstone is kindness. Mm -hmm. So... This is something that Aikido focuses a lot on, and, and this might you know ring true to you in your Aikido days, but are you able to activate life protection through kindness? And the better you get in martial arts training, the more kindness you have to exercise, because the more in control of situations you become. So as you get more dangerous, as you get a higher level of skill, as you become more effective, if the kindness doesn't grow along with it, you become a danger. Instead of someone who can protect themselves and others, you become an aggressor. Uh, You find reasons to use your skill set as opposed to finding reasons to not use them. So when I look at extremely uh, admirable people, so a gentleman in my life who who exhibits this is a gentleman named Bill Hayes. Uh, He's a a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, He was involved in the Marine Corps martial arts program and the development of it, a Vietnam veteran. Basically, he has every reason you would ever want to be hard-edged and to be difficult, and to be unkind. And he has the skill set to execute that as well. He's an incredible karate practitioner. But he executes kindness every time I see him, and he's very gracious. And he doesn't speak with a hard edge. He doesn't act with a hard edge. And through that kindness, you can tell his effectiveness because it still exudes through him. So he can't hide the fact that he's incredibly good and incredibly dangerous, but the kindness is what comes first. So... That's something that I always try to remember, and I often like to use the term life protection, which I actually first heard through Oyata Sensei, who was a a karate savant, because you're not just protecting your life, you're protecting the lives of your family, you're protecting the life of the person who's aggressing at you. If your skill set is high enough, you can control the person who's aggressing at you and de-escalate it. You don't have to necessarily do your worst. What you can do is you can escalate to the point where you have control. You can escalate instantly um, as much as is needed, but then de-escalate as much as possible. And there's a lot of stories in, in sort of Aikido lore about Aikido masters, basically just through their, their persona, their energy and sort of their, their talking that they managed to de-escalate situations that could have potentially been violent and they could have gone violent, but they chose not to. So if I had to pick one thing, it would be that. Nice. All right. I got some fun questions to wrap it up here. Who are cool. a few names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Well, uh, uh, Bill Hayes, uh, the gentleman I just mentioned, um, nice. 
just because of the level of, of skill that I've seen in him, um, I still don't understand it. And that's something that's really fascinating to me. I, I've watched him and I've trained with him and he's, he's guided me and I still don't know how he does it. And so having someone that you can look at and say, I don't get it, that is what creates curiosity and continues to sort of um, keep you motivated to do that. Okay. So, so he's definitely uh, the first one. Other people, I think you have to put Bruce Lee on there. Nice. And you must because, uh, you know, you can see Bruce Lee's skill on film. He can't hide it. And he was a maverick. He was someone who came from a classical or a traditional background and then innovated and became one of the earliest sort of MMA um, prototypes. I think everybody in their martial arts journey should go through a Bruce Lee phase where they're looking at him, they're watching him, they're like, how is he so fast? Um, they're reading the his books. They're basically just exploring him and finding how he became such an unusual individual inside the martial arts world. Okay. So I think he's he definitely needs to be up there as well. Okay. You have to put, um, I think you probably have to put Musashi on there as well. Nice. Just from his impact on Budo, uh, Bushido, mindset, stories, just the, just the stories of, of how he lived. It's one of those things where I, can, I have to assume that most people who get involved with Japanese sword probably encounter Musashi early on, either through uh, portrayals in movies or through his, his five rings or just through some other means. So I think you have to put him on as well. And let's see. Um, hmm. I, I guess... And if you can't think of a fourth, I've had a few guests. Yeah. Oh, some, some have done two, some have done three, some have done six. So it's yeah, it's it's your personal pick. So if three is good, it's up to you. Yeah, I, you know, you know, the the four is the number you aim for, just so yeah. that way it's you know historically appropriate. <laughs> yep. Uh, I will say I'll, I'll put I I'll, I'm, I'm going to venture one more here. So the obvious other pick in the karate world would probably be Matsumura, but I'm going to go in a different direction. I might go Sakagawa in the karate world. Okay. Um, one of those two, although I'm tempted to put Matayoshi on there as well. So Matayoshi sensei, maybe, maybe I'll just settle on him for now. Um, he was one, of, there were two people that were really responsible for sort of saving Kobudo. And it was Taira Shinken and Matayoshi Shinko. Uh, oh, you know what? Ooh, 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 ooh. Okay. I got another one. I'm going to put a five <laughs> in. All right. So Matayoshi Shinko, I think I might put in there just because of his work in saving Kobudo. Kobudo has such a close place in my heart that I need to um, I need to put him up there. Okay. But there's another one. And obviously, I don't think anyone's shocked that I'm putting a lot of karate people on here. <laughs> but it would be Yuihara Sikichi. And he was the Motoburu uh, gentleman. Um, he was connected to the Motobu family, um, which was connected to the royal family in Okinawa. And without him, we would not have a lot of the more deep, subtle aspects of karate the dance, the importance of the mainote, which is the dancer's hand, uh, the importance of, of tuite, um, joint locking, grappling, a lot of those things that were sort of getting washed out of karate, he was able to put back in. Okay. So um, he'll be my last selection without wasting a bunch of time thinking more about it. No worries. All right. Now, this next one, you can't pick one that you've been involved with, a favorite martial arts book. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the first one, uh, how many am I allow allowed? Is it just one? Usually I ask for one, but some people give two or three. <laughs> so. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to put it into a few different buckets. Okay. Um, so the first bucket is for someone who is kind of at that brown belt, black belt level, and they're not sure where to go next. 
My pick for them is a book called Living the Martial Way by Forrest Morgan. Nice. It's a great peek inside of what's kind of waiting for you after Black Belt um, and, and things that you can aim for. If you're interested in Japanese sword, the answer is Autumn Lightning. And that's a book by a gentleman called Dave Lowry. He captures the spirit, the mystery, and sort of the coolness of what it's like to study sword in the modern era. So those are two that I would recommend, certainly. And then uh, for karate practitioners um, specifically, uh, My Journey with the Grandmaster, um, that was a book written by Bill Hayes. So those are the three I'll give. I'm going to have to check out some of those too. All right. This one, this one I'm really curious about because you're, you're a little younger than me, but you grew up in the nineties and stuff. How about a favorite mm-hmm. martial arts video game? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, Bushido Blade has a special place in my heart okay. because it was the first video game that you played where it was a one strike one kill sort of consequence. Mm -hmm. So most martial arts video games, and by the way, I'm a nerd. So um, (laughs) if you need more video games, just let me know. So Bushido Blade was interesting because most fighting games, they involve a continuous combat. So a game like Tekken or Mortal Kombat, you fight, 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 you work each other's health bars down, boom, 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 boom. And eventually someone wins. With Bushido Blade, you had to gauge distance, timing, and you basically had one or two opportunities to cut and kill your opponent. And then that was the end of it. So... I'm going to go with that one. Okay, good. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show? Mm, okay. Hmm. I think I'm going to go Kung Fu on this one. Nice. Okay. Uh, Kung Fu was, it was, um, you know, Carradine, God love him, uh, didn't really have a ton of martial arts skill. No. But he was super vibey. He had his awesome vibe to him. And obviously we'll, we'll kind of ignore what happens to him later in his life where he kind of gets weird. Yeah. But early on in the Kung Fu era, I just loved this, this sensation of like, he's this meditative uh, monk and he's just traveling around. He's looking for his brother. He finds himself in, in these scraps and he kind of just eases his way through these problems occasionally. You know, of course it's a TV show there. So there needs to be some fighting, but it's just, it had a lot more philosophy than, than I was used to. Of course, I later learned that he kind they kind of stole that idea from Bruce Lee. Yes. So it's sort of like, ugh, I don't know. It does, so it doesn't age as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, for TV shows, yeah, I think I'll probably go that way. Well, and then Bruce Lee's original plan is what became the TV show Warrior, if you've ever watched that now. Right. I have not seen that, yeah. but I have heard that they that they made yep. that. So I'm excited to check that out. Yeah, that's really good. And and I have to ask now, since we're talking TV shows, are, and I noticed in your blog, are you? I'm assuming you're a fan of Cobra Kai. <laughs> so I, I have a, I have a, a complicated relationship with Cobra Kai. <laughs> okay. So I am a, a huge fan of the original two. Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm a fan of the original three Karate Kid movies. Okay, at least you didn't uh, say the with, original four. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, to me, there's only three, the fourth one and the fifth ones, or, you know, they, they don't exist to me. Agreed. Uh, so the, the original three. So we all know, number one, uh, it's a timeless classic. We got to learn about Mr. Miyagi. We all got to meet Daniel for the first time and Elizabeth Shue, who we all fell in love with immediately. Mm-hmm. So that was an awesome movie. Number two, you get to go to Okinawa. So, you know, that was actually filmed mostly in Hawaii. But, right. you know, for the purposes of the movie, you get to go to Okinawa. And that's like, wow, okay, now we're seeing the birthplace of karate. This is really special. And then number three is just fun and weird and not good. But like Terry Silver is awesome and like... So you just kind of enjoy number three without thinking too much about it. Mm-hmm. So grew up with them. They were a big part of my life. So Cobra Kai comes along. And in season one, I am loving Johnny. Like 
Zabka is just an amazing actor. Uh, he portrays that character so well. He was so hateable in that original movie, but also somehow sympathetic. Yep. And he manages to kind of bring that back. He's out of touch, problematic, but at the same time, you're rooting for him for some reason. Mm-hmm. So I really love what Zabka brings. Ralph Macchio, I wasn't quite as sold on. I, I don't think he brought as much to the table as Zabka did. And then I thought the kids were all fun too. Where I started having a problem with it though is as time went on in that first season and then in subsequent seasons, they got further and further away from anything that actually had to do with karate training and more and more into basically just TV kung fu, for lack of a better term. These kids were beating the heck out of each other. They're taking huge damage and they're just sort of showing up the next day with like one Band-Aid on or something like that. (laughs) TV magic. uh, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And I'm like, hold on a second. The original Karate Kid movie – you're learning about Mr. Miyagi's philosophy. He's helping Daniel deal with his emotional traumas. He's teaching him in sort of these traditional ways that he can live and grow with. So the original movie actually had some really good messages. They, they dressed it up uh, for, for movie, of course, and, and all of that. But it actually had really good messaging. And it wasn't just about the violence. The show, to me, went in a direction that I didn't really love. I loved seeing Yuji Okimoto, yes. Okimoto um, r- um, r- reprise his role as, as Chosen. And obviously, you know, I think Kreese is cool and Terry Silver and stuff like that. But no, honestly, I, I fell out of it. I, it lost me. Too bad. Okay. All right. I, I understand it, though. So, all right. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Hmm. Okay. This is a tough one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to choose Return of the Dragon um, using, using the American names, Return of the Dragon. Yep. So I can never really keep straight, you know, which was which, but Return of the Dragon. So the reason why I like that one so much is we already talked about how important Bruce Lee is. You know, my love for Karate Kid. Yep. Uh, my runners up include Bloodsport and uh, Kickboxer nice. for, nice. for Jean-Claude. I thought the first Steven Seagal, um, Above the Law, uh, Hard to Kill, those were fun. Yep. Yep. Um, Steven Seagal fell off of a cliff, though, in terms of his quality. Yep. But no, Return of the Dragon for me. And the reason why is because... The action involved in that movie, extremely competent, really liked it. We got Chuck Norris in there. That was really cool to see. Enter the Dragon certainly competes. And it's actually, if you're comparing apples to apples, Enter the Dragon is probably the better movie. But Return of the Dragon, there was just something about it that felt really authentic. Like I felt like I was hanging out in, I think it takes place mostly in uh, China. Do you remember? Yeah, well, I know the, the, the main, the big fights at the Coliseum in Rome. Rome, that's fight, right, yeah. fight with Chuck Norris, yeah. That's right, that's right, yeah. But but the, a lot of the movie takes place in, in a restaurant. Yep. So, like, you're kind of hanging out with those guys. There's a lot of discussion about um, Japanese karate versus um, what they call Chinese boxing, which is, you know, uh, Kung Fu or, or, or Wing Chun, whatever it is you want to say. They call it Chinese boxing in the dub. And so, obviously, I was a karate practitioner, so I'm like, oh, wow, like, I'm seeing somebody, I'm seeing a bunch of karate guys lose. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, what does that mean? So, uh it was just a really interesting movie for me. So that, that one stands out as special. You're the first one to pick that one, actually. So most people go with, you know, Enter the Dragon. So I like that. And and I totally get the Enter the Dragon argument. It's, yeah. it's probably a more competently made movie. Uh, that one is, you know, it's got a great villain. Um, it's got some good acting. And it's got some diversity in it as well, which you love to see. So, yeah, I, I would definitely tolerate an argument for Enter the Dragon. But uh, what what are some of the other ones you've heard? 
Um, man, it, it runs the gamut. I mean, I've had people go back to like, you know, you know, Jimbo, you know, go all, mm. all the way back to old school like that. Karate Kid's yeah, been picked good. many times. I mean, that's my pick because mm. that's why I started martial arts. I've had mm. a few people go with Bloodsport. I've had some people pick Best of the Best. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon's been picked. So, I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's a lot of them in between. But, yeah, I'd say Enter the Dragon's probably been picked. Them Kind of depends on the person's age, but I think Enter the Dragon yeah. and Karate Kid have probably been picked the most. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and shout out to Seven Samurai as well. Yes. I think that's one of the most important martial arts movies ever made. So yeah. it deserves a mention. Nice. All right. Final question. Now, this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie. It can be, but just a favorite movie fight scene. Oh, oh, this is actually easy for me, believe it or not. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Princess Bride. So <laughs> Really? Nice. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. So The Princess Bride. In that movie, we see probably the greatest sword fight ever put on camera uh, between Inigo and Wesley. The gentleman who helped conduct those fight scenes was an extremely competent uh, and qualified sword master who was also involved in this in the lightsaber fights in the original Star Wars movies. Okay. So I've always been partial to the original lightsaber fighting style as opposed to the prequel and, and sort of sequel fighting styles, yep. which are much faster and, and more sort of visually spectacular. But I've always loved the original lightsaber duels, which felt more like samurai duels. Okay. Uh, and so the gentleman who who was involved, I, I believe his last name is Aunt Bob. I believe his name is Bob Anderson. Um, hopefully I'm not getting him wrong and besmirching him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was involved with that. And then he was also involved with the Princess Bride. So to me, the sword fighting in the Princess Bride, it's so competent and so skillful. The stance work, the hand work, and also the gentlemanliness of it. There's a discussion going on during it about the tactics being used. These two guys, while opponents, are becoming friends throughout this fight. Uh, yeah, uh, to me, that's top shelf. Yep. And you're right. It is Bob Anderson. He's he's worked on Highlander, Star Wars, Three Musketeers, Princess Bride, Mask of Zorro, Lord of the Rings. So, yeah. There you he, go. Uh, he's done he's the time. man. Definitely. Cool. Well, Matt, I, thank you. I, I have to. This has been so much fun. I, I knew very little about you. I, I literally found your name by accident because <laughs> I was researching someone that one of my other guests talked about and saw an interview you did with them. And I'm like, oh, this actually sounds like a really interesting person. And I'm so glad I reached out to you because this has been so much fun. But I will put links for all of your stuff, for your for your books, for your blog and everything when the show comes out. But to, any last parting words, anything I, I maybe didn't ask you about, you want to make sure I get out there before I let you go? No, I just wanted to thank you for, for considering me. Uh, the truth is I'm not a person of high consequence or high rank or anything like that. I do enjoy you know, sharing writing and, and videos and books and stuff like that. So I just enjoy being part of the conversation. So uh, it was a pleasure to come in here and, and learn a little bit more about you and about the podcast. And yeah, I'm looking forward to... Uh, diving deeper and, and seeing who else you get on here because uh, it's it sounds great and I'm, I was happy to be a part of it. Nice. Well, and, and you're a great storyteller and that's 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 what I look for when I find guests. I love people who and sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. So it's you know you're a great storyteller and I've I've enjoyed hearing your story and your journey and, and I can't wait till the episode comes out. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.